Hey, guys, I thought I'd just let you know Jerry Caesar and Donna are on a sabbatical, as you're aware, and I continue to be praying for them. To the best of my knowledge, he is not working. He's been instructed to, to not think about church, to think Donna, think Donna, think Donna. And that's exactly what Donna would love for him to do. And so continue to pray for them. Ryan Carver, his family are on vacation in Missouri. They should be back later uh, this week. So I wanted to bring up speed what's going on in their lives. And because several of you have asked me, I thought I'd go ahead and give you an update. Some of you, most of you, may be aware that my wife Pam was admitted to the hospital this past week. Uh, she had some shortness of breath and felt just uh, some sudden weakness. And so it took a while, but one of the things that they've been able to identify is that she has a heart congenital uh, problem, which happened, you know, when she was being formed. And so one of her, for those that are medical here, for, for you, it's, it's her right coronary artery. It's like going in between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. And so when the heart goes to beat, that section that is malformed is being compressed as the heart beats. So you can't stop your heart from beating, right? That's not compatible with life. <laughs> and so what is normally a, a round vessel in that one area is a little bit flattened. And so she is having some symptoms, and they do not intend on releasing her from the hospital until they fix that, more than likely. We will be meeting this afternoon with the uh, cardiac thoracic surgeon, and he'll be helping us determine what is the best plan. It's a, it's a, it's a rare situation. It's a rare effect. So they're taking their time with it. And she's become a point of interest, guys, just to be honest with you. When one nurse hands her off to another nurse at the shift change, they're uh, saying, hey, look at this, and they draw a picture, and this is what's going on with this patient. So Pam is not normally one who craves attention, but she's getting it one way or the other. <laughs> and guys, I've got to tell you, it's, uh, God has been so good. It, it took them days to find out what was going on. They were going down a certain pathological process, and nothing was producing results. And so they ran another test, and... One of the technicians just happened to notice, quote, out of the corner of his eye, ooh, that's not right. And he was the one that detected that malformation. So they're trying to figure out the best way how to go through that and fix that. And uh, so I wanted to bring you up to speed so that all you guys wouldn't know. And uh, I think Pete, I mean, what I want to do right now, and probably what you're wanting to do and are doing it, even as I'm speaking, is that you would want to be praying. I have a feeling that you're doing that right now. So at the end of the service this morning, Pete will be praying for us. Would you turn your Bibles, or you can also reference it on the wall behind us. Um, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 3. I'm sorry, Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6 this morning. The title of the message is, Goodness and Mercy Shall Chase Me. I'm being chased by that noise. <clears throat> I love that. You know, we grew up learning it and memorizing this goodness and mercy shall follow me, and that's true. But what's more truer is, she you look deeper into that Hebrew word, goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. And we want to look at that this morning. Now, one of the things that's been happening while Jerry's been out of town, we've been going through a series about the story of God's mission 
Dave preached out of that book, uh, a chapter out of that book a few weeks ago. Ryan did as well. And this week I'm preaching out of it, starting with Psalm 23. And as you guys know, Jerry, for the past three weeks, has been doing a series on the book of Psalm and how that we can pray in a world that's messed up. Uh, We're praying for a broken world for the kingdom to come. So on the heels of Jerry's message, we want to pick up with Psalm 23 this morning. And from the get-go this morning, I want to let you know, it's it's essential to let you know that the Psalms are expensive. They're costly. You may not have thought of that as you've read the Psalms, but they are. See, the writers of the Psalms had to leave something with them when they wrote the Psalms. If you look at some of the psalms, particularly the songs of lament, which expresses intense emotions, real human struggles, and the anguish of the heart, and in writing those songs and those prayers, the writers did leave a part of themselves. They speak from the depth of the soul of the worshiper, then and now. While David wrote this song, it was Jesus who fulfilled it. I don't know if you've thought of that. You know, at one point, and I don't know how you get on this list, but at one point when, when Jesus had been resurrected and there's two that are going on the road to Emmaus, a little town on the outside of Jerusalem, Jesus appears to them and he listens in on what they've been talking about. They thought, well, we thought that just Jesus would be the Christ. And the Bible records for us that Jesus began to open up the scriptures to them and how that everything must be fulfilled in the scriptures that was spoken of him from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. And so this psalm, Psalm 23, is also a psalm that Jesus fulfilled. Now, here's what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms greatly enriched the depth and breadth of your affections and our emotions so that we learned, for example, how to lament in a godly way, how to wait and hope in a godly way, how to praise even in dark days in a godly way. And one writer said, and I like what he said, we ignore these Psalms or we neglect them to our own peril. So here's what I'm hoping for today, is that we can hit the reset button on Psalm 23 a little bit and increase your favor in this psalm, because it's very easy for us. This is rote. Some of us have memorized, and it's great that you've memorized, and sometimes you can just by rote say something, and the words not come alive in your heart. So today I'm hoping to hit the reset button a little bit on this expensive psalm under five headings. Now when I say five headings, you're used to three. That means that some of these headings are going to to speak through faster than others. But these are the five headings that we're going to speak about. One, I lack nothing. Two, makes me, leads me, restores me for his namesake. The darkest valley. The table in the presence of my enemies. And goodness and mercy shall chase me. What I'd like to have you do with me this morning, if you would read, and this is from the NIV. Would you read together this text with me? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're going to get it right. ESV and NIV are a little bit weak on this, where they say follow. And I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again more accurately. It is surely goodness and mercy so chase after you. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. Would you open our hearts, open our ears to hear your eternal word that never fails. Lord, let this word be sown on good ground. Open up our hearts to receive it so that it may produce 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look at Psalm 23, more than one commentator says we're over-familiar with this psalm. One commentator said it's the most dangerous psalm of all the psalms. Now, why would he say that? It's the most dangerous psalm. Well, it's because of its anesthetizing familiarity. We hear the words. We know the words. We can quote them. And somehow we can just sometimes tend to gloss over them, speak without engaging them in our mind. And the purpose is it is to be an active, continuing, and man, mainstay role that's played over and over and over again in our head. This is my opinion, but I have a feeling. When you look at songwriters and how they write, you know, they just don't write a song and it's once and done. You know, they get a tune going in their head. They get words going in their head. And it goes over and over in their head. And I have a feeling that this is what's happening with, with David. He wrote this song, but he gave it to all of Israel to sing. And we know that Jesus also is singing the psalms. This is one of the psalms that he would have sang. It's meant to be in our life what it was in David's. A refuge, a hope, and Jesus fulfilled it. So let's dive in this morning to this story. Hit the reset button a little bit if you would. And again, let's increase its favored status in our hearts. I say it's a story because... It is a story of a journey in six verses. By the way, here is what's characteristically missing in this psalm. There's no plea in this psalm. No request is made in this psalm. There is no petition, but rather it's an unfolding story that leads us to a destination in verse 6. Psalm 23 is a story of a man who's recognized that his cup runs over, not just filled to the brim, but illustrates a faithful God who delights to give abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Psalm 23 is also real life. It's a journey of faith filled with trials, traps, temptations, but it's a journey. And if you look in verse number 5, which we will in a minute, it's a journey that leads to the banquet of God. And so the shepherd takes you from verse 2 where everything's great, green pastures, springs, living waters, still waters, and he takes you through verse 4, the dangerous desert valley where thieves and enemies are hiding in the dark. All this we're going to do in six verses. 
And he takes you to the banquet table of God, to the feast table of God, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, where there is oil and there's new wine and there's the finest of food that's been harvested. And you celebrate with God. Historically, I like what this, this writer says. It's from the 19th century. A Scottish pastor, Andrew Bonar, points out, the church has so exclusively applied this psalm to herself as to almost forget that her shepherd, Jesus, once needed it and was glad to use it. Another commentator, Christopher Ass, says, we jump too quickly to think of ourselves in praying this psalm about Jesus who is our shepherd, and he is. But we must remember first, in the original context, it was David's life, and then the fulfillment context in the life of Jesus. You know, we, we, we do this every Sunday morning. Pete did it this morning. As we were releasing our children over to New Creation Kids, he'll give a snippet of the story that they're about to learn. And then he will use these words, and the Christ connection is that the teachers are going to make. It's what we do as parents. We take that story, and we make the Christ connection. And that's what we're wanting to do this morning. Make this Christ connection to Psalm 23, where we see that Jesus did fulfill it. Let's read verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. These words, lack nothing, have a very strong echo from the Old Testament. Actually, in the wilderness, at the end of the 40-year journey, as they're about to go into Jericho, this is what Moses says. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through the desert. These 40 years, the Lord God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. Guys, you know David had a Bible, right? David had his first five books of the Bible and a couple of other books, but he had a Bible. And I'm wondering, wow, where did he get that line for? Where, where did he get that lyric? He certainly knew the passages from, from Deuteronomy where Moses said, you have lacked nothing. Now, watch this psalm get personal real quick. In previous psalms, up to Psalm 23, as you read from them, God is described as a king, which talks about his position, or a deliverer, which talks about his function, or a rock, or a shield. But now in Psalm 23, David describes him as a shepherd, and it gets even more personal when David introduces the word, my. This psalm is chock full of personal pronouns. My shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me. He refreshes my soul. I will fear no evil. You are with me. And it goes on and on. Count them up. There's 17 different personal pronouns that are used in these six verses. This is a very personal psalm. And while we're on nuances of, of this psalm, let me point out just a little bit of history about sheep as we dive further into this. Sheep are talked about by Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures frequently. They call us sheep and how we're like them. Do you guys know we're called sheep over 200 times in the scripture? Not just a handful of times, but 200 times. What's he trying to get at there? Well, let's think about a couple of their characteristics. Sheep are dumb, number one. <laughs> number two. 
sheep are dumb. <laughs> they butt heads a lot. They're irritable. They can't find their own food and water. They have no defenses on their own but to run away. That's the only defense they have. They weren't built for defenses. They have to run away. They lose their way and are completely dependent on the shepherd. Sound familiar? Hitting a little home to us? And maybe even the church sometimes. 200 times. He must be wanting us to get it. Got to be something more in those 200 times. This song both comforts us, and you have probably felt many times in your life the comfort of Psalm 23. But it also confronts us. It comforts us with, I am with you. But on the other hand, as a confronting psalm, the words, I lack nothing. I lack nothing confront us. And it bears further looking into. So would you do with me just one more time? Let's hit the reset button on the psalm and look a little deeper into what's going on. When we think of nothing, of wanting nothing, there's a tendency to think of physical needs, provision, not enough check at the end of the week or at the end of the month. Or we think in terms of our reputation or respect. That's what we tend to think in terms of. And for sure, I'd lack nothing seems a little strange statement for a man like David to have made if we think in terms only of the physical or material needs. After all, he had been hounded and harassed repeatedly by the forces of his enemy, Saul, as well as by those of his own estranged son, Absalom. He was obviously, David, a man who had known deep personal poverty, acute hardship, anguish of spirit. Therefore, it's absurd to assert on the basis of this statement that the child of God, us, the sheep in the shepherd's care, will never experience lack or need. For example, when you think of men like Elijah and John the Baptist, even our Lord himself, you realize that all of them experience great personal privation and adversity. When he was among us, the great shepherd himself, Jesus warned his disciples before he departed, in this world you'll have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome that world. So based on the teachings of the whole Bible, we can only conclude that David was not referring to material or physical things when he made the statement, I lack nothing. Probably better understood. I lack nothing is also stated as, I shall not lack the expert care and management of my master. Take a look at this next lyric with me, if you would, in Psalm 3. Psalm 2, I'm sorry. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. By the way, the folks that are on the platform singing this morning, the worship team, Zach, thank you for doing that song. That was, that was so wonderful. We were able to enter into that, into worship. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. As a shepherd himself, David knew that sheep only lie down. Can you imagine when it is? When do sheep lie down? There's only one time they lie down. It's when they're contented. It's when they're full. And they will lie down in plush. They'll sprawl themselves in plush grasses. You can, they can even look over at another field 
And it's a beautiful field, ripe for consumption. And they won't move because they're contented. They're contented because their shepherd is with them. And he's the one that's leading them into green pastures. He makes me lie down from one perspective. Makes me is from a place of assurance and plenty, just like we've been talking about, plush green glasses, grasses. Therefore, it's quiet rest. Feathers aren't ruffled because they see the shepherd and they know that the shepherd is with them. But yet from another perspective, makes me lie down can find another real meaning. Has it ever made you lie down? Has it ever made you slow down? It may not look like green pastures, but it is. God is at work. Ever lost a job? Ever been laid off? That's hard. But in the context of his sovereignty, it was him making you lie down. Supervisor didn't fire you or lay you off. God rules over that supervisor. God owns that layoff. Worried about next Friday, what the test results may look like? Hey, I'll tell you. I'm concerned a little bit about talking with a cardiologist today. He makes me lie down. He's preparing a table before us. How is it that just happened to notice out of the corner of their eye something wasn't right with Pam's scan? Makes me lie down. Makes me slow down. He's at work. God owns Pam. He owns that hospital and the, the staff that's helping him. I told you Pam made a pretty good impression up there on some of the guys. Cardiologist was in there this morning and he was telling them about the nuances of what was going on. And guys, I'll tell you, it's scary. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Pam has this beautiful smile. And so the cardiologist, as he's leaving, reaches over and just gently squeezes Pam's foot as they've been exchanging some conversation together as he's leaving he squeezes her foot and says I like that smile God is so kind to put a medical staff personnel in there making us lie down in green pastures as we're going through what we're going through God is at work in a hundred different ways and it's right under our nose and we don't even know what he's doing sometimes you may not see it clearly now the troubles that we're walking through the troubles that you're walking through you may not see it clearly yet but according to C.S. Lewis when we get into heaven and we look around a little bit make sure you're watching me and we look around a little bit in heaven we're going to go after a few minutes well of course we will know then as we are also known. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This psalm is driving us, if you haven't noticed, towards this benefit. He is with you. And he restores you for his namesake. 
He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths, verse 3 says, for his namesake. What's a namesake? You're probably familiar with how we use namesake frequently among us. You have a favorite person, a person that you thought a lot of, a person that you, you held in esteem and honor, and you'll name your child. Maybe you yourself were named after one of those childs or one of those people that your parent felt that endeared to. That was a place of honor. When it comes to the Hebrew scriptures, namesake has a little bit of a different meaning. It's a Hebrew idiom, which means to protect one's own reputation. For his namesake, to protect one's own reputation. Now, God's shepherding of David is not because he loves David, though he does, but when you get to the bottom of it, God loves David and God loves us this morning for his own namesake, for his reputation. And that's a strong place to abide. Leading David along the paths of righteousness is a matter of God's character. David is confident that God will never fail to lead him, even when that means bravely leading David through the most threatening places. Christopher Ashe says, David knows that with God, it won't be enemies who will stalk him, but it'll be goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy will stalk us. How did David get that kind of faith? I like to get in on that. The disciples say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And we want that, don't we? We want to believe him more. We want more faith in God. Regarding David's faith, David got this part right. For your name's sake. And it was a place that he could stand. For your name's sake is rooted in God's character and his sworn unbroken promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are our fathers in the faith. David had the for his namesake kind of faith. I want that faith. For his namesake. I want to live there. Namesake speaks of reputation. The reputation or name of God depends upon his doing what he's promised to do. God is concerned about his reputation. As a matter of fact, when speaking of his name, it made it all the way to, top, to the top three of the Ten Commandments. He was concerned about his reputation. Taking his name in vain means not giving it the reference to that name that belongs to him. Stripping it of his meaning or using it meaninglessly. Simply put, the name of God should be honored and protected. It was God who said a good name is rather to be chosen than find riches. God is concerned about his name for his name's sake. He doesn't use his name flippantly. And he doesn't want us to do it either. I'm walking up and down the halls of the hospital this week and I'm hearing people say, Oh my God. I don't, I don't know that they were crying out to God at that moment. It's easy to sort of flippantly use his name and he wants his name hallowed. Jesus said, hallowed be your name. God reveres his name. If you don't do it, God will. This is what he says to the Israelites. 
Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things. And he's talking about restoring them back from when they were in exile. I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. I will show the holiness of my great name, the name that you profane. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign God, for his namesake, his reputation. Does he do things just because he loves us? Yes, he does. But the very bottom thing, the thing that underlies this, what motivates him most deeply is his character and his reputation for his namesake. The enemy of our souls can at times tempt us to question whether God loves us. But for his namesake is rock solid because he said that he would. And there's no shadow of turning with him. He is constant. And that is where we rest our confidence in his unfailing love as we go through, keyword, through the valleys. Now, let's hit the reset button on that valley for just a second, would you? The NIV translation, as I've already alluded to earlier today, does a very good job of translating this as the darkest valley. I know we're familiar with, we've grown up with the shadow of death, and please understand that death is a very, very dark shadow. But also, this psalm is intended for us to live in it, to walk in it day by day, and there's dark valleys that we do come up against. This is an all-of-life active psalm. So this psalm is for the dark valleys now, today, this afternoon, this week, for whatever presents itself. Now, watch this. This is very cool. There's a shift in here in verse number 4 that we would do well to pay attention to. Notice how beginning in verse 4, the tone is going to shift. The pronouns themselves shift. When all of life is good, in Psalm 1 and and through verse 3, Yahweh is He. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides me. But watch in verse number 4 when we get to the valley. In the presence of his enemies, Yahweh is now you. David is now speaking to him as you. Not just speaking about him, he leads me. Now he's speaking to God in the valley. God becomes personal to us in the valley as much as we hate him. The pronouns change. He's not merely somebody I believe in. He's someone I walk with. The greater King Jesus goes into this valley, and his dark valley was on the cross. And there he feared no evil. He goes into the valley of death so that you and I might live with him forever. Derek Kidner says in his Psalms, commentary, the dark valley is truly one of his right paths, just as the green pastures are. Let that modify our perceptions of a valley let's go ahead and reset the button there it's truly one of his right paths your rod your staff they comfort me sheep need the shepherd's rod and staff because they can't do anything on their own we've already referred to that sheep are defenseless how can they they have no weapons they're not built for this they got hooves and they can run with those but they can't bark you know to warn off something They don't have any weapons they themselves. 
They need a shepherd who will fight for them and protect them. Now, we all know that David had a sling, but he also had a rod. And that rod is also called in that culture a cudgel. It's generally worn around the waist, and it could weigh up to 25 pounds. It could do some damage, and it was intended to. But concerning that shepherd's weapon, our shepherd, Jesus, concerning his cudgel, when Jesus walked into the valley of his grave, his rod beat away the predators of sin and death for you, for me. And when Jesus walked out of his tomb, his staff points out that there is a feast of life in him. And now that Jesus is raised from the dead, his spirit follows us, chases after us all the days of our life. God's house of goodness and mercy now dwells in us as we are in Christ. Shepherd's staff. You know what that is? It's a staff. It's a walking stick. It's some horrible terrain, rocky terrain. And it helped them walk. They used it, that staff, to help get the sheep who have a tendency to stray back on the path again. And they had a crook at the end of it so the sheep that would fall off and go into a ravine, they could lift it back up. Rod and staff comforts. Now, watch what happens in the presence of enemies. Verse number five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Guys, I said at the beginning of this message that this psalm is a story. It's a journey, and it's taking us all the way through to verse 5 and to verse 6. And that's where your journey is headed. God is a great host, invites you to sit at his table and to commune with him. Notice verse 5, he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. This picture shows the overflowing joy of communion. The sign of welcome. He's rolled out the red carpet. You are welcome. You're honored at this table. You are filled in all of this in the presence of your enemies. We're always in danger of attack. Scriptures speak of our adversary being one who would seek to kill, to destroy, goes about seeking who he may devour. In another place, we're told that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's a, it is a wrestling match. Following Christ doesn't mean that enemies are not present. They are. But in the presence of enemies, he's preparing the table before us. Enemies are those who persist to the end in opposing God's king. Enemies can be physical. But some of our worst enemies can be, can some of those be Ones of our own making, fear, guilt, shame, anger. I have Pam's permission to share this with you. Right before we had our son, Joshua, uh, she'd had difficulty conceiving. And we tried everything. And things still weren't happening. And so some enemies came around her table enemies of you did you must have done something wrong surely there's something that you left off you don't qualify for for the god's fullness those were real enemies 
enemies of her own making in her mind. And I think sometimes within ourselves, me included, some of our greatest enemies, the ones that taunt us most, are the ones that are of our own making. Now I will tell you, in part, that by being able to have Joshua help to squelch some of those enemies, some of the voices, those taunting voices. But for a while, for a time, for a season, and then she discovered, and I'm discovering, along with David, that though my flesh and my heart fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Sometimes those voices still come around. Did it come around for you? Some of those things of our own making. It's interesting because when the scripture says, most of the, most of the translations translate that as, my flesh and my heart may fail, but no, that's not true. The most truest rendering of that passage is, though my heart fail, though my flesh and my heart fail, because they will, our heart is going to fail us. And that's why John says, he is greater than your heart. God is my strength and my portion forever. He is setting a table before us, and my cup overflows. I feast spiritually, even as I am in the presence of my enemies, even if they're of my own making. Goodness and mercy shall chase me. We finally get here. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, verse 6 says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Love what Tremper Longman says about this passage. His goodness and mercy pursue us. They run after you and me. That wherever you may find yourself to be, the mountaintop or the deepest, darkest valley, you know that his goodness and his mercy are relentlessly chasing after you. I like the way this Scottish preacher, when he was preaching on this text, says, he said, you know, when I think about this text, I think of, I think of a couple of sheepdogs. And uh, here it is, the boys, they're bringing the sheep home. And they're out in front with their sticks, and they're leading the sheep. And as they're leading the sheep, as sheep tend to do, they will divert themselves or rough, get distracted by something and go off on their own way. There goes goodness, sheepdog. And he's running after those sheep, and he's bringing them back into place. Back in the right pass. And just as soon as they get back, wow, there he goes. There goes another couple or a few of them. And watch Mercy, that sheepdog, go chase after those sheep to bring them back. Church, this is what we have. We have a good shepherd that is leading us. And goodness and mercy are behind us. And they're chasing us all the way surely goodness and mercy shall chase me all the days of my life 
He shows you how significant you are by going all the way to the cross for you. Your shepherd's in front. He's leading. Goodness and mercy are behind you. You are hemmed in. You're going home. You're going to a table that has been prepared for you. How can we not say of such a God, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Amen.